You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 45. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. This episode is sponsored by The Push Lab. The Push Lab is an online birth course that's offered by my good friend, Dr. Betsy Caldwell, who has a doctor of physical therapy, and she specializes in pelvic health and women's health. Now, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know that I am very passionate about the pelvic floor, given my personal experience with postpartum after giving birth to my daughter. And so I'm a really big advocate of every single woman learning about her pelvic floor and learning the best techniques for managing and keeping a healthy pelvic floor. And that's why I am so excited to share with you Dr. Betsy's birth class because she is a pelvic floor physical therapist. And so much of her birth class is centered around how to have a healthy pelvic floor while you're in labor in delivery, and also in recovery as well. I already took a birth class before giving birth to my daughter, but because it wasn't with a pelvic floor physical therapist, I did not learn any of the proper breathing or pushing techniques that are best for maintaining a healthy pelvic floor. I believe that that contributed to a lot of my postpartum pain and recovery that was extremely difficult. So even if you're not a first-time mom, the Push Lab is the perfect birth course for any mom who has had birth trauma in the past and wants to try things differently this time around, or a mom who's hoping to have a VBAC, a mom who wants an unmedicated birth, or a mom who's open to an epidural or other pain management options. All of our listeners get a discount using the code MOTHERGOOD. You can visit yesmamaco.com to sign up for Dr. Betsy's birth class, the Push Lab. And I myself am almost done with the course and I've just learned so much so I'm so excited to try it in just a few weeks so again that's yesmamaco.com and don't forget to enter the promo code MOTHERGOOD at checkout for Dr. Betsy's class to get a discount. As with all of our episodes this episode is not medical advice and the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment. As always please seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare professional with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi Trish welcome to the show. Thank you for having me I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you on as I was just mentioning that I've been following your Instagram page for a while. It's labor.nurse.mama on Instagram and you just have so many helpful posts about labor and delivery. So for those of uh, our listeners who don't follow you yet, could you just briefly talk about who you are and your background? Sure. I would love to. So my name is Trish. Um, A lot of people know me as Labor Nurse Mama, but my name is actually Trish. And um, I am the mother of seven children. I have six that I've given birth to and one that I adopted. Um, I've had uh, a lot of experience both in having babies and delivering babies. I've been a labor and delivery nurse for about 15 years. I um, had a dream to become a labor and delivery nurse. So I I actually went to school to do labor and delivery. And um, unlike a lot of people who do that, I've stuck with it. It was um, my goal and my dream. And what happened with me was I started working and I was so excited And I got into um, the birth environment and I quickly became very discouraged. I was watching uh, women come in. They were uneducated as far as the process of labor and delivery. They were um, just came in with um, very little knowledge. And they, in turn, I watched as they were coerced or um, eh, made decisions that weren't exactly the best for them. And at bedside, I found that I can do a lot of education at bedside, but when you're in a lot of pain or you're exhausted or or even you're a hospital patient for the very first time, which most mamas, it's the first time they've ever been admitted to the hospital. It's It's not the best time. It's not conducive to learning. And so I just became more and more discouraged. And um, I spent most of my years as a travel nurse going to the West Coast. And I loved going to the West Coast because they're way more laid back and a lot less likely to intervene um, unnecessarily. 
but I would come home and work on the East Coast and get more discouraged. And so in 2017, I started both um, my shop, which is the Habibi House, and um, we sell handcrafted labor and delivery gowns and boho swaddles and stuff for the modern mom. But at the same time, I started the blog. And through the blog, I started teaching, but I still felt like I wasn't reaching enough women because my heart and soul was about educating women before they come to the hospital. And so a year ago, I started teaching on Instagram and it just took off because these women are hungry for it. They, they, they know that the birth is theirs, but somehow they've been made to feel that they don't own the labor room. And so my goal has been to teach them, you do own the labor room. You've hired these doctors, you've hired the hospital, you've hired the nurses and you have rights. And so I'm just all about empowering women to make the decision that they want for their birth. I don't push my agenda. I have very specific things that I, I prefer when it comes to labor and delivery, but my heart and soul is for women to be informed and educated so that they can make the best decision for their family. And so that's what I do. <laughs> well, I didn't realize that you had six uh, had given birth six times yourself in addition to your experience as a labor and delivery nurse. So it sounds like you're definitely the expert, expert both personally and professionally. I, I found that kind of interesting that you were talking about, you know, a lot of labor and delivery nurses who get discouraged. Uh, why, why is that? Because I've heard that myself that, you know, there's just a lot of burnout. Is it because of the, and education and the coercion that you're talking about and just the confusion of the fir- of, of moms in general? I would say that there's um, a lot of different reasons that labor and delivery nurses get burnout. It's a very exhausting emotionally, physically, mentally. Um, this job is, it takes a lot out of you and um, you're in an experience with a person and a family who it's the, probably the top most emotional experience that a woman can go through. And I think it does make a difference when our patients are not educated about the process and they're scared and we're trying to advocate for them, but our hands are tied because our the doctors are our bosses. And so the decisions they're making, they give the order, we follow the order. I mean, now we will, you know, go toe to toe at times, but for the most part, um, we can only inform our patients so much and they come in and, and they think, well, the doctor knows I'm going to do what he's saying. And so it is it is exhausting at times. I mean, don't get me wrong, because I work with some incredible obstetricians and midwives that absolutely have their patient's best interests. But I think there's a lot of nurses who get burnout because it's a hard job. I mean, you think we get there sometimes six, six fifteen in the morning, and you know, a lot of labor and delivery nurses are very um, invested in their job. So if we have a patient who's close to delivering at shift change, we'll stay two or three hours extra, sometimes not paid. So it, it's a it's a difficult job, and and you know, there's also experiences that are not so fun in labor and delivery that happen that are heartbreaking, and we have to walk through that. We're still the nurse for that mom and that baby in a in a heartbreaking situation as well. That makes a lot of sense. I also find it fascinating when you're talking about the West Coast because I'm I'm in California, Southern California, and I I have noticed at least just from the stories that I've heard other moms in other parts of the country tell about their birth process that it is a lot more laid back, and especially with my doctor in particular. I mean, his office is right near the beach and he's right. just super laid back kind of doctor. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just so different from the experiences that I've heard. But yeah. Uh, it is. Know, other moms give. No, it is. It's a lot different on the West coast. I mean, and I, I worked in Seattle recently and I couldn't believe it. I got not reprimanded, but questioned because I started an IV and hung fluids and they were like, Oh, why? Why'd you start <laughs> fluids? And I was like, what do you mean? Why did I start fluids? I, I thought we had to. And they were like, well, was she dehydrated? And I was like, no. Oh my <laughs> I was so excited. Like I, I just fit in so much. Like they totally my way of nursing. And I'm, I'm very much the nurse who gets in trouble with the doctors who want a vag exam every two hours. And I'm like, yeah. uh, no, that's <laughs> not necessary. You know? So I tell my patients and my students, like, 
anything that's done out of convenience or curiosity, you want to avoid. Like Mm. unless it's necessary, it doesn't need to be done. So, you know, inductions out of convenience aren't necessary. Out of medical reasons, they're necessary. That's why we have them. And that's what I teach my students as well is that interventions are there for a reason. They were invented because of emergent situations. Birth is natural and we don't need to intervene unless we have to intervene. It should never be for someone's convenience ever, you know. That's the perfect segue into just the overview of the birthing process. I'm just so excited to go over this with you because I've always had these questions. I've only given birth uh, once myself, but I'm 35 weeks, almost 36 weeks pregnant now. So I'm about to give birth again. So yeah, this will be, I guess, a refresher for myself too. But we definitely have a lot of pregnant moms who who, uh, listen to this podcast too. So I, I, at the very beginning, I guess, you know, the very basic question is, what do you think moms should pack in their hos- hospital bags? Like, what is, do you, do you notice what other moms pack? And you're like, oh, that, that was pretty clever. And I, I think that's, that's super helpful to have. I think that the hospital bag needs to be very minimal. I think that a lot of women overpack and it ends up being frustrating to them because they're not going to use two thirds of it. So I'm very minimal when I suggest what to bring to the hospital. Um, Because of COVID right now, things are a little different because a lot of hospitals, for instance, are letting moms bring their own birthing balls or their breast pumps or their... um, boppy pillow, which I usually recommend bring your boppy pillow. I do not recommend the breast pump or the ball because most hospitals have it. So what I recommend is you call ahead of time, ask them, do you have a peanut ball? Do you have a birthing ball? Do you have a breast pump that I can use if I need it? Which they probably won't need it, but in case they do. Um, But the things that I recommend in the hospital bag is I recommend your own gown Obviously, something that's not pants because you don't want to wear pants afterwards. It's really just a pain <laughs> your pads and all that. Fun stuff. Right. Um, and maybe a robe and some slipper socks or socks. But you really, I mean, even that we provide for you and they get pretty dirty. So don't wear them during labor. Um, I recommend toiletries, just small amounts of toiletries. If you want a little bit of makeup, bring a little bit of makeup, some chapstick, some gum, because sometimes you're in labor for a while. And if you're being induced, you're going to be, it's going to be even longer and you may not be able to have much to eat. So gum can, you know, freshen you up a little. Right. Um, And I recommend some kind of hair tie or something to pull your hair back because that can, hair can also get pretty annoying during labor, especially if you're going unmedicated. I recommend um, that you bring all your chargers and something to watch movies on because labor can be long, especially if you go to the hospital too soon or you're being induced. So I feel like nowadays with with, um, iPads and tablets and all those fun things, like they can, you know, sit and watch TV. They can FaceTime, especially with COVID now because no one can be there. They can FaceTime and see family members. I highly recommend bringing a nice water bottle, something that will keep like your drink cold for a while. Um, We provide pitchers, but they don't really keep them cold. And when you're pushing or you're in like active labor, it's very refreshing to have something ice cold. And I recommend snacks for dad. I I actually recommend a dad bag where he has (laughs) his own stuff. Um, I can't tell you how many times dads have gotten splashed or dirtied and they need like clothes in the labor room. So I recommend just a, you know, one or two extra pairs of clothes that are comfortable. Again, you never know how long labor will be. You just don't know, especially with your first baby. It can be very long. Um, And I recommend that dad brings like high protein snacks, something healthy. Now, this is like AKA off the record, (laughs) but I do recommend that mom brings some like high protein snacks and things that will keep her, um, because now on the West coast, you're more apt to be allowed to eat on the East coast. I tell my patients, especially if they're not high risk, not they're high risk, I won't, but I tell them, I don't, if I don't know what they're doing when I'm gone, because it's hard. I mean, the West coast has it where the women can eat during labor and I don't get it because you're doing like the hardest marathon in your life with no fuel. Right. You know, so now if you come in in natural labor and you, you're not, we're not inducing you, a lot of times you're not going to eat. Your body kind of, you know, 
you, you stop wanting to eat. But early labor, if you're not staying at home, you need to be eating something that sustains you. Um, don't need pads. Don't need diapers. You don't need um, to have a, I mean, you can have a nursing bra because it is comfortable, but one or two, you don't need a bra during labor. Um, there's a lot we provide. They don't need nipple cream. All the things, a lot of these things just leave it at home. Get pads from us, get panties from us. You don't need panties. Wear those lovely stretchy panties that we provide. And you can <laughs> always ask your nurse for more supplies and they will bring you more. Um, ask her for a couple of the under pads to take home because those are great to have in your bed in case you bleed. Um, but yeah, I'm very minimal, very minimal about what to bring to the hospital. I'm definitely going to, yeah, I'm definitely going to underpack or not underpack, but pack minimal this time just with the essentials. Like you said, I'm glad you mentioned the water bottle because I had forgotten about that last time. Yeah. So right after mom settled into the labor and delivery room, what should a mom expect? I know that we have some first time moms listening. So I guess this question is more centered around first time moms or maybe even moms who are you know, previously, uh, for example, my sister, she had two home births before she decided she wanted to do hospital birth. And so her third was in a hospital. So she, obviously she'd already given birth before, but the first time in a hospital. So mm -hmm. what, what should a mom expect once she settles into her labor and delivery room? Well, I guess I would take it back a little. That's one thing that, um, I've included in my labor, labor academy, uh, our course is what to expect when you get to triage mm. and what to expect once you make it past triage, if we say you're good to stay and we put in your room. So I think the first thing they need to know is more than likely there's going to be very few times, especially a first time mom that she's going to bypass triage. Now, <laughs> if she comes in and she can't sit on her bottom and she's breathing heavy, like we can usually, a good labor nurse can usually tell by looking at you about how far dilated you are wow. based on, on what you're doing. That's crazy. Um, so most moms are going to come to triage. So what she's going to expect is she's going to come in. We're going to do a vaginal exam. This is one vaginal exam that I tell my students. This is necessary. We have to get a baseline. We usually will monitor the baby and we'll call the doctor depending on what's going on. You know, just if you think you're in labor, I'm just talking about simple, you know, I think I'm in labor. We'll watch you probably for one to two hours and then check again. The only clear cut sign of labor is cervical change. That does not mean just dilation. That could be that she comes in, she's dilated to two and 50% effaced and maybe negative two station. Then we check her two hours later, she's still two, but now she's 100% effaced and negative one station. That is a change. So we would admit, you know, now on the West Coast, they might send you home to get further. East mm. Coast, they're probably going to admit you. So let's say you've made cervical change. So usually in triage, we will start your IV, we'll do your admission process, get it started. And then the triage nurse will usually, depending on the size of the hospital, you may have the same nurse if it's a small hospital, but most often you'll be passed off to your admitting nurse. And at that point, they're going to get you settled in the room. They're going to um, hook you back up to the monitor keep you, depending on, again, which coast you're on and whether or not you'd have to stay on the monitor. Um, and on the West Coast, you might be more apt to be able to do intermittent monitoring, which I highly recommend that everyone mm -hmm. asks for who's low risk. There's really no reason that you have to be on it unless something is going on or you have a medical reason. Um, that's one of those rights that women don't realize they can say and ask for and insist on. Now, again, I always say there's no hard no's, no hard no's, no hard yeses for interventions. IVs are interventions and monitoring is an intervention. Everything we do that isn't part of the natural process of labor is an intervention. And you always have a right to say no, but should you? So that's why I always recommend moms are educated. So they, they know, why do we use an IV in labor? Is it just because there's, you know, is there's a reason we want to keep you hydrated. So if your plan is not to have an IV, then you need to have a plan that you can present and say, okay, I know that you do this so that I stay hydrated. So here I'm going to drink water. Um, I'm going to, you know, drink water in between my contractions. I'm going to stay hydrated myself orally. So you don't ever want to say, no, I'm not doing it. You want to have a plan. Why? You know, in monitoring, we do that to make sure the baby is tolerating labor. The one way we can tell that the baby is, 
is that they have a good fetal heart pattern that shows us that they're getting enough oxygen. When we start seeing decelerations or irregular patterns, we know something's up with the baby. So that's why we watch the baby. Well, you need to know if you want intermittent monitoring. Well, if you come in and triage and we put you on and the baby's having decelerations, well, intermittent monitoring is no longer a good option for you. Mm. So typically, most women are going to be put on the monitors. Um, We're going to, if we haven't started IV, we're going to start an IV. And then just depending on your doctor and your plan of care, where you're more than likely, well, for sure now with COVID, you won't be ambulating in the hallway. They keep you in the room. So you might be able to get up and move around in the room. If you have to be on monitoring, we, we usually will let you walk around with the monitors attached. You don't get very far. Um, you're able to get up and use the restroom. We um, typically, hopefully you're in a hospital that only does vaginal exams when they're needed, when it's indicated and not routinely. That's one of those things that I always have a beef with. I don't think there's any reason to do it every two hours, especially with a first-time mom. Um, there's indications. I always tell my patient if if she's chatting away, she's on Instagram and she's talking to me and telling me about her baby shower and her baby room <laughs> and laughing and and you know participating in conversations. And then I go out and I come back in a half hour and she's on her side, buried in the armrest, you know, crying. That's an indication to me I might need to check her cervix. You know, so that's not a a curiosity or convenience. That's an indication. So that's what I always try to educate my moms and my students. Like there are times that we know you need to be checked and that's when you should. I do not recommend allowing cervical exams every two hours. Now, if you're induced, it's a little different because we have to see like, do we need to titrate the medication? It's a little different. I don't know if that helped any of that. (laughs) Hopefully. Yes. I'm so glad you brought up the interventions too. And I I didn't really realize that IV was even considered an intervention because I I really wanted to go over the the types, the most common types of interventions. I know that there's, just as you were saying, like a lot of moms aren't educated on what they are. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you could just you know, mention the most common and then how safe they are. And then also just common side effects that moms might expect from getting an, an intervention? Well, I guess that there, you know, there's so many. And like I said, anything we do to interrupt the natural flow of labor, like starting an IV, um, fetal monitoring, those are all interventions that we're doing. So I guess the, the most common um, intervention in labor and delivery besides fetal monitoring would be Pitocin. And that's a medical intervention where we're giving you medicine. And it is a synthetic form of your natural hormone, which is oxytocin. We usually use it to induce labor. We also use it to augment labor. And augmentation just means you came in in labor, but maybe it's not going fast enough for someone's liking or things aren't changing. Maybe your water broke. We usually give you about 24 hours before we start getting a little worried about infection. Um, so they might augment you with Pitocin. So Pitocin acts the same as oxytocin. It's not as effective. I I always call it Pitocin contractions because they come very regular and they come, you know, pretty hard, but until your body like gets on board and says, Oh wait, I know what's happening. And your body takes over. They're not super effective, but usually the body will take over, you know, within four to six hours, just depending on how many babies you've had. Um, So oxytocin, there is a risk of um, fetal intolerance. The baby may not be able to handle it. When you go into labor on your own, you both you and the baby have time to acclimate. So you might start having, you know, contractions every 20, 30 minutes. You start to deal with those. Then they increase a little and they get closer together. You start to deal with that and your pain tolerance goes up, you know, so does the baby. The baby is gradually acclimated to these contractions because when you have a contraction, your uterus is constricting and the blood flow to the baby stops. So during that contraction, the baby is relying on the reserve of oxygen that they have reserved. So if your contractions are coming hard and fast, it's harder for the baby. Now, most babies acclimate to that and have no problem, but occasionally with Pitocin, because it's so, um, 
little more intense and they haven't had time to acclimate, you might see more fetal decelerations and a little more uh, intolerance to labor. So that would be another side effect as mom, we, our bodies only have so many receptors for oxytocin and pitocin. Sometimes it gets saturated. And so after delivery, you may end up having more bleeding problems, have like a hemorrhage risk if you've had too much pitocin. Again, it's fluid that we're pumping into you. So you always have the risk of having, you know, too much fluid. You might get swollen or what have you. Um, Another intervention that we do, I guess I'm trying to think of which ones would be most common. Oxygen would be an intervention that we use. There's not really much risk to it. We usually use it if the baby's having decelerations. It can be very annoying trying to push with an oxygen mask on. Um, But there's really not much risk to the oxygen except for annoying mom. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, I had to have that myself when I was pushing. Yeah, it's annoying. Me too. Mainly when I did Lamaze because I hyperventilated. (laughs) Once I started doing like, and this is what I recommend my students, just simple deep breathing. It's the best thing you can do. You don't need any fancy breathing, just rhythmic deep breathing is the best. Um, Other interventions would be, um, we've got two things that we do. These, These aren't these are two things I find that most people don't know about. And I think the la- that they do not get enough informed consent for these. Can't tell you how many times I've had doctors just come in and say, you know, this, this isn't, this is happening. So we're going to do blah, blah. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is very invasive. Why are mm-hmm. you not, you know, really wow. getting informed consent? Right. And that would be an IUPC, which is, which is a intrauterine pressure catheter. And then an FSE, which is a fetal scalp electrode, they, the IUPC takes place for the external monitor that monitors your contractions. And we put it inside the cervix. Oh, wow. Um, I've never even heard of those. <laughs> Probably yeah, because I'm on the, or the West Coast. <laughs> it's very common. And we, I wow. use them on both coasts. Usually with someone who's on Pitocin, we'll get an okay. IUPC. Um, most often, if you don't have Pitocin, you're not going to, but we have to find out like how strong are your contractions? Are they contractions enough that will cause cervical change? And this usually is someone who may be on Pitocin for a while Mm. and we're getting close to like a high limit of Pitocin and we want to go higher, but we Mm -hmm. need to find out like how strong are these contractions? Because, you know, the baby, like I said, they have to rely on the reserves. And if the contractions are too strong, they can't. So we have like a math formula we do. And wow, um, yeah, but the thing is, is I see them put in so often without them telling there is a risk of perforating the uterus with these. Oh, wow. Um, they now, again, this is an intervention that if it's absolutely necessary, it's it the risk, you know, the, the, the benefit outweighs the risk. But right. It, I feel like we need to tell the mom like all of this and let her make a decision <laughs> on that, right? Um, exactly. The other one is the fetal scalp electrode. And I'm sure you've probably heard of that. That's an internal monitor that monitors the baby's heart rate. Mm-hmm. And um, I have worked with doctors. It, basically what it is, is it's a little coil at the end of an electrode that we um, very, it, it sounds horrible when you say it out loud, but it twists into the baby's scalp, the outer layer of skin. And it monitors the baby. It is the most accurate way to get the baby's heart tracing. So it's used in an emergent type situation. Let's say the baby's having like massive decelerations and we're we're recovering them and they're coming back up, but they keep happening. Or we can't trace the baby's heart rate efficiency. So maybe mom is a little overweight and um, we keep not, we keep tracing her heart rate. And we know this because we have like her on the monitor and we're worried you know, so we'll use one in emergent situations. It's absolutely necessary, but I have seriously seen doctors who break mom's water with it and then immediately put it on. This is what I call convenience right? because you won't lose the baby. You know, mom, if she's writhing around in bed or she's rolling here and there, you're still going to have the baby on the monitor. I'm sure you've had babies. You know how often we have to come in and readjust. Well, I always tell my patients, that's okay. That's why we're here. I'm getting paid to come in and readjust your monitor. You <laughs> right. All over the bed, you move around the room, you do whatever you need to do for you because it's not about me. And so a lot of doctors like it because they absolutely know the baby's heart rate without any question. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going, you know, it, there is risk to that. So I've seen a lot of times when they take them off at delivery, we we have little sores on the baby's head and 
I feel like the parent, like I've seen them put them on by just saying, you know, we're going to put this monitor in it's internal. So we'll really have an accurate reading of the baby's heart. Um, and they don't explain what's happening, you know? And so I feel like those are interventions that are used without a lot of consent. Um, let's see, what else do we have? Um, we do use Pitocin after delivery for, um, a preventative for hemorrhaging almost everywhere I work, mom will get 500 to a a liter of, um, of Pitocin after delivery. Well, that's not absolutely necessary for everyone. For me, I've had six babies, so it's definitely necessary for me because I'm a high risk for hemorrhaging. Someone who's had one or two babies, three babies is low, you know, has a low risk for hemorrhaging does not have to have a bag of Pitocin. So that's something they can refuse. But again, you have to know, like, am I high risk for hemorrhaging? If you're not, then that's something you can refuse. Um, Is this not necessary? It's overused. You know, somewhere along the way, someone realized it prevented hemorrhaging. So they just started doing it for everyone across the board, you know. Right. But it's not necessary. C-sections are is a, a medical intervention that we do that happens. Um, I think everyone should be educated about C-sections, about what happens in the OR. I tell, I do one hour consults um, for women and we, whether we do a birth plan or we go over their fears or we go over their previous trauma, because a lot of women are traumatized from their birth. Right. Um, whatever it is we do, we do like a one-on-one consult. And I always tell my moms to include they don't have to include a whole bunch, but they have to include for special circumstances. C-section is one. If your baby goes to the NICU, that's another thing I recommend that you include in your birth plan. Um, there is a lot we can do to make a C-section family-centered. I feel like all women should be educated on what happens in the OR in case they end up there because that in itself can be very traumatizing. I mean, you go into the OR, we've got very bright lights on. There's a team of people in there that more than likely you only know your circulating nurse. Um, we we get you numb and then we lay you down and you're naked, you know, and then we put a catheter in and there's all these people in there. Of course, we see it all the time. So it's not a big deal to us. But I feel like for a mom, she needs to be prepared and understand like so that she's not shocked and, and she's alone because we usually keep partner out in the hall until we have her nice and numb and then we bring her, bring the partner in. So I feel like it's a very like I've so many times stood by a patient and watched her and thought she had no idea this is coming, you know, and we're still, no matter what we're going through, we're still women and like to be naked with lights on and people hustling and bustling (laughs) around you is shocking. Right. You know? So I always teach my students about what could happen in the OR and and they're right. So you can ask that conversations are kept to centered around the birth and not because I've watched it many times where the staff will start talking about their weekend plans or what their child did in this. And and you've got a mom who's laying there wide awake, who's going through a major abdominal surgery because it is. And I feel like that's important thing for moms to advocate for themselves is to say, Mm -hmm. Hey, I want you guys to keep the conversation to a minimum and only talk about the birth. And that would be your circulating nurse. That's her job to make sure the entire room knows that. Um, And hopefully she would do that anyway, but there's other things. They have clear drapes. They have ways in which you can participate. Um, I totally advocate for skin to skin. If baby's doing well. Now, if you go back for an emergency C-section, because maybe the baby's heart rate, there's a chance you may not get to do skin to skin right away. There's a chance you can. So always ask for it. Um, Usually if they don't let you do skin to skin, which this is not a West Coast problem. I, I have, since probably 2010, I think you guys have been on the ball with skin to skin in the OR, but on the East coast, uh, more than more often than not, the anesthesiologist or the baby nurse will refuse because oh, it's wow. inconvenient to them. And I tell my moms, no, it's not about them. You right. tell them you want to do skin to skin. And if they need to bring in another staff member, please do it. Right. You know, and there's really no reason. And it's been proven that it makes everyone's job easier because the baby can transition a hundred times easier. It's been proven that their heart rate, the respiratory system, everything acclimates. Wow. Um, even some hospitals are starting to do resuscitative care on top of mom wow. because that her baby resuscitates the quickest. Wow. So there's absolutely no reason that they can't do it. 
Like, it's just crazy to me. I even had, I had an OB friend of mine deliver at the last hospital I was at in Tennessee. And she was having a hard time getting the hospital to agree to skin to skin in the OR. She came from the West Coast and she's a provider at the hospital. Oh, wow. (laughs) I was like, man, if she's having a hard time, what are my patients going through? Because patients come in and, and they're very intimidated by the providers. And that's why education is like one of my mantras on Labor Nurse Mama is knowledge is power. And it's so true. I, I, my, this last year, my family's gone through a lot and I have a five-year-old. I've just recently got married and it's a lot of changes for him. And so we're meeting with a life care specialist every week for him, like just learning different coping skills and she said the other day, when you without um, knowledge, well, with knowledge is power, which I say all the time on Labor Arts Mama, but she went farther. She said that when you have choices, you have more power. And so I always like that's something that really hit me hard because that is when you do have choices. Now, again, you want to know why and when to exercise your rights. Like, and why you, you, you never want to have a hard no. Like I, I tell my mamas when I do my one hour consults, a lot of times they're like, I absolutely do not want blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, I get that. But let's say you're in labor. Like for instance, a vacuum. This is another intervention we use, right? If you're in labor and your baby is right there, and the heart rate drops down in the 40s and we need that baby out and all you need is one little help with the vacuum or you have to go to the OR, obviously the vacuum is the best choice in that case. Now, if you're pushing for two hours and your first time mom and your doctor's getting tired of it, that's not a good reason for a vacuum, you know, but there's time and a place for every intervention. So vacuum is another one, another intervention we use. It's a scary word. It's not like we now back in the day when I first started, we did have it. It it almost felt like a vacuum. It was hooked to canister with suction and it was a big contraption we'd have to go and get and bring in the room. Now it's literally like a little suction cup with a tiny little hand pump. They put it on the baby's head. There's tons of rules about it. I have to chart when the doctor puts it on there. I have to chart how much pressure they use. I have to chart how many seconds they use the pressure. I have to chart if it pops off. If it pops off twice, they can't use it anymore. So there's a lot of rules. Um, There is risk to bruising and bleeding for the baby's head. Um, It's traumatizing. It can be traumatizing. I see a lot of babies, if it's used correctly and in the right situation, You'd much rather have that than your baby pass because the oh, heart right. Rate, right. So that's one of those things that they don't need to use it for convenience. And most doctors nowadays, because there's so many rules governing it now, when I first started, they could do it willy nilly. Didn't matter. That and forceps. Now, hardly any doctors use forceps. If a doctor uses forceps, they're usually old school, older people, and they can use it perfectly. Wow. Like in a second, get the baby out. But new doctors do not know how to use them and they don't, they don't. But like, if you have, you know, a really older doctor that probably should be retiring soon, they can usually use them like a pro, but not many people use them anymore. I'm trying to think of any other interventions that most moms would not. Yeah. I I don't know if it's considered an intervention, but one of them that I had was where the, um, the, the fluid, uh, was actually replaced inside mm-hmm. of my uterus. I, I forgot. Yeah, it was a- it's an amnio infusion. Amnio infusion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that is something we do. Sometimes that will be if your baby's, usually we're going to use that. Your baby might've had a cord around their neck or a cord issue. Um, if we're seeing very deep, uh, what we call a variable, that's when the baby's heart rate drops really quick and comes back up really quick. Mm-hmm. That's an indication to us something's happening with the cord. Nine times out of 10, it is the baby has it either around its neck or somewhere around its body. So when the uterus constricts, the cord does around the, the neck as well. So we'll see that during a contraction. Sometimes maybe the cord is getting compressed. So we'll see, let's say I, I roll you to your left side and I see that the baby's heart rate drops down real deep and real quick. Well, I'm going to know, okay, maybe when the baby's on the left side, maybe that uh, cord is between the baby and the pelvic bone. So sometimes replacing fluid can help with those types of deceleration. So I'm guessing if I looked at your strip, 
there's probably something going on with the cord. We actually use the IUPC catheter for that. Oh, okay. I guess I, I did have that then. Yeah, <laughs> so one of my yeah one of my uh, good friends she gave birth a few days after me. She uh, she got had that for the the cord. Just as you were saying, I, it was crazy. I guess for me, it was that my water had broken so many hours previously and I had no water left basically. So, but I was just so fascinated. I just thought it was so cool that you can replace the fluid. They probably knew that because of what they were seeing on the monitor, that Mm -hmm. your fluid was pretty low. Um, Yeah. And that's obviously another reason that we do it to replace the fluid. Amniotic fluid usually replaces itself. um, Oh, wow. The baby is the one making it. So as it drinks, it And so we can usually like, you know, if you have low amniotic fluid, we can tell there might be something going on with the baby's kidneys like that. The fluid tells us a lot about the baby. So more than likely you were gushing. And yeah, uh, yeah, so the baby just wasn't able to keep up. Interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up C-sections too, because I definitely wanted to cover that. And I'm so glad that you even mentioned that it's so important to become educated because I think every single mom that I know, first time mom who's had her first C-section is pretty traumatized about yeah. it, especially because it's it's usually, or it's always been an emergency C-section. Yeah. I mean, you don't just like schedule a C-section for your first child. And and so I'm so glad that you you brought that up. Yeah. And I think it's important to know, like, I, I right now I have a vision and a dream of creating a VBAC course. And I'm in the process of talking to VBAC moms because mm. VBAC, like one of my favorite posts that I've ever done is VBAC is underused. It's so underused. So these first time mm. moms who end up in an emergent situation where they have a C-section I, and then there's a lot of fear that surrounds VBAC that is unnecessary 60 to 80% of VBACs are successful. Wow. So, but the trick is, is being educated and knowing that it takes a while. It's a, it's right. not a quick process. So you have to have a mindset. Like I'm all about mindset change and just, and um, dealing with fear because I, I just taught a class when I, I only open enrollment to my course uh, four times a year because we do a lot of inside stuff with our students Um, on our, in our Facebook group. So it's a lot of work. We teach every week and, and we communicate, they come to us when they go to their doctor's appointments and, you know, ask our advice. We don't replace medical advice, obviously, but we try to help them get good questions to talk to their provider. But one of the things about fear is that when you're fearful and there's so much fear about VBACs, right? And doctors, doctors are very, um, there's a, you have to find a VBAC friendly provider. If you do, you're in a great place because VBACs are really the risk of uterine rupture, which is what they mostly fear them, you know, get to them with is so minimal. It's so, the numbers are so low. They're barely higher than if you've never had a C-section. And so there's just a lot of fear. And when you are fearful, you produce adrenaline. Adrenaline works against oxytocin, which is what our body needs for labor. So it stalls labor. So when you've got a mom who's not being supported, who hasn't been educated, who doesn't understand, and um, in, in any case, whether it's a VBAC or regular labor, it's counterproductive to labor. And so wow. a lot of women end up in a C-section because they are so full of fear, which again is why you need to be full of knowledge and not fear. Like, So my whole thing is about helping women change their mindset and look at labor like Labor is exciting. It's the one time in your life that pain is productive. So I try, try, you know, yeah. And I try to teach my students, let's look forward to it. I want you to be so ready that when that first labor contraction, those real labor contractions hit, that you're like, all right, my buddy's here. He finally showed up for the party and we're ready to go. (laughs) Because the pain is your partner. So looking at it like, okay, this pain is productive. This pain is good. It's, it's not a bad pain. Like it's, we're the only nurses in the world who get excited about pain. Right. And so I try to really decrease that fear because fear is counterproductive. So the same thing with VBAC moms, like there's just so much fear surrounding it. And the truth is, like this, the um, ACOG, which is one of the governing bodies that we follow and um, right. A1, all of them, they all recommend VBACs for specific, like, you, you know, if you've had an emergency C-section because baby's not tolerating labor, or you've had a breach uh, C-section because of 
a breach baby. Those are examples. And I have a great uh, post on labornursemama.com about this to find out, are you a candidate? Because that's the first step. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've been told that your pelvis is too small, I always recommend a second opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if you're told that before you even get, try to have your first baby, because it's very rare that that's the truth. Um, your body was made for your baby and your baby for your body. So go in believing that and less proven otherwise, you know? So uh, I, I have a post that I do every once in a while that gets tons of traction and it's who had the biggest baby. And you would not believe some of the babies, these women <laughs> birth, like it's shocking wow. every time. But uh, so if someone's told that they, that they need a C-section because their pelvis is too small, there, there is an actual diagnosis for that, but I would always get a couple opinions about it because having a major abdominal surgery changes everything, Mm -hmm. you know, but everybody that governs labor and delivery recommends a VBAC. So the reason that doctors don't want to do them is because the slight chance of, you know, a uterine rupture and then maybe a lawsuit. You know, right. so mm-hmm. I, you don't ever want to do everything, anything out of fear. And I, that it really bothers me because a lot of women are candidates for a VBAC and they're usually successful. If the woman comes in educated and with a mindset that this is going to take a while and I'm in for the long haul, you know, right. Exactly. Yeah. I, one of my good friends had a VBAC and she opted for, it's, it's pretty unique. I, I don't, I'm sure maybe it's a California hippie thing. I don't know. It's a it's a birthing center that's actually part of a hospital. So she was still able to get an epidural and had nurses, but then she also had a midwife that stayed with her the entire labor and delivery mm-hmm. uh, and basically like coached her through it. And she said that that really helped her because there are moments when she freaked out like, oh, I'm not going to make it and I'm just going to have to get another C-section. And then her midwife just calmed her down and you know, said, this is normal, you know, everything that you're going through is normal. And then she said, just having that reassurance was what made her be able to have that feedback, which is incredible. Oh, yeah, that's one of the I mean, that's one of the things I tell. I just did a class last week on uh, fear, and then another one on the pain of labor. And the best, well, the best decision you can make is who you choose as your provider. That's probably the most influential decision that you can make in your pregnancy that will affect your outcome. Because, and and I always recommend trying, if it's your first baby, call up to the hospital that you're wanting to deliver at, ask to speak to labor and delivery, and then whoever you get say, hey, this is totally anonymous, but if you wanted to go unmedicated, which provider would you choose? Now, you may get one nurse who's like, oh, I'm not going to, but most nurses (laughs) will probably tell you, you know, and get like an insider, go into mom's groups on uh, Facebook, you know how areas always have, and find out, say, this is what I want for Mm -hmm. my birth do you recommend providers and then interview those providers? Cause it's a huge decision, huge right. decision. But the other thing that I say is the support that you have in your room is the other huge deciding factor on your birth experience. Because if, if you have some like, now this is before COVID cause now you get one person. So you better choose real well. But <laughs> if, you, if you have a friend or a, a family member who wants to be in your room, And they're constantly like, oh, when I was in labor, this, this, and sharing horror stories. Or if they say to you, oh, you can never do it unmedicated. You can't even get a tooth, your cavity filled. Well, that has nothing to do with labor. Your pain tolerance for any other pain has nothing to do with labor. That's one of the free classes I do during my launch. We do is um, that you can have the, an unmedicated birth regardless of your pain tolerance, because it really, you're high pain tolerance, lay pain tolerance does is not needed in labor wow. and delivery. And so if you have someone like that, do you really want them in your room? And if you tell them you might not want them in the room and they act rude about it, then you for sure know they don't need to be in your room. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's a clear sign. This is not who needs to be at my birth because your birth is, it's your experience and you need to be supported. And if your partner who you may have to have in your room, like you don't really have a choice potentially, 
is not very supported. They need to be more educated. Like they need to do your birth course with you. They need to do the breastfeeding classes with you. They need to do all these courses and classes with you. We have a whole section just for partners and how they can support you at each stage of pregnancy and postpartum, because it's really important that they understand that, yeah, during transition, she might be screaming her head off and saying, cut this baby out of me and I want to go home and I can't do it, but that's normal. And you just support her through that if her goal is unmedicated right? Most women whose goal isn't unmedicated probably is going to have an epidural before transition. So you're not going to worry about that. But during transition, even me with my sixth baby, I remember grabbing my ex-husband by the neck and saying, tell her to turn the Pitocin off. I'm done because I was was high risk. And I'm a labor and delivery nurse. Like if he hadn't understood, like, no matter what I say during transition, just tell me I'm good. I, I've got it. I'm good to go. Like, you're doing great. Like, just dismiss all the craziness. Like, he could have very likely gotten freaked out. Right. And started begging my midwife, you know, which, of course, she I work with her. So she she already knew. <laughs> but, you know, there there's a lot of crazy stuff that can come out of you during transition. Well, both of you need to be educated that this is normal. And it's a sign the end is near. So instead of like letting your mind go to freaking out, you turn it around and say, oh my gosh, this is the, this is means the end is near. I'm almost done. And so there's just so much you can do when you're educated about the stages of labor as well, you know, to understand that. I'm so glad you brought up the pain, you know, pain, that pain is good and that fear is counterproductive, which I had no idea with the hormones and everything to that level of detail that you mentioned. I, so for moms who want to use pain management options, mm-hmm. what are the pain management options available? How safe are they? And then since you also mentioned a lot of moms who don't want to use drugs, what do you recommend for those moms as well if they want to, in order for them to accomplish their goal? So one thing that I tell everyone is you have to have a pain management plan. Even if your plan is to get an epidural, you need to have a backup plan, a plan B. Because I can't tell you how many women who absolutely their whole goal is epidural as soon as they get to the hospital. Well, that's not always <laughs> you know going to happen. You may not be, you know, you may be two to three centimeters and you're, you're providing my recommend you wait for a while. The other thing is there may be, it may be the middle of the night and there's only two, you know, anesthesiologists on and they're both tied up. There might be one in the OR and there might be a line of women ahead of you getting an epidural. So you always need to have a backup plan. The other options medical, like medicine wise are IV medications. Um, One thing I always tell my patients and my students is that they work great the first time you're going to feel loopy and the pain is going to decrease. The second time, now the only exception to that is fentanyl, IV fentanyl. That sometimes works a little more effectively, more uh, off, uh, more than the other IV medications, which is usually Nubain or Stadol or the other ones we use. But usually that second dose, you just feel really loopy, but you feel all the pain. So I usually recommend if you're planning to get an epidural, maybe one dose of IV medication before you get the epidural. But if your plan is epidural, then go ahead. If you feel like you can't hack it, go ahead and tell your nurse that you think you might be ready because there's a couple things we have to do. We have to, we have to bolus some IV fluids in because one of the risks of an epidural, which is an intervention is that your blood pressure might drop. If your blood pressure drops, it decreases the flow of blood to the baby. So then we're going to see, first, we're going to see maybe mom gets dizzy and sweaty and pale um, getting a little bit dizzy. I always tell my mom, if you start feeling a little dizzy in your head after your epidural, let me know right away. Cause that's usually the first sign her blood pressure is about to plummet. The last sign is baby starts getting affected. So I want to get it back up before the baby goes down, you know, and it's usually easily to recover them, but sometimes it can be a, a real stressful situation for mom. Um, so that's a risk of, of an epidural. So if we give you an epidural, we've got to bullish you with fluids. We've got to call anesthesiologists. We've got to call the CRNA, whoever's doing it. We have to go grab the medications. They have to come in and interview you. There's a process to it. It's not like, oh, I want epidural. Oh, it's done. And now I feel nothing. There's a good 30 to 45 minute window between the time you ask for it and you are back in, you know, laying down and feeling good. And then it took Um, a while to kick in too, which I had no idea. Yeah. I always tell my patients like a dimmer switch and we're slowly dimming the pain. Um, And and then you, you know, it gradually goes to where hopefully you only feel the pressure. Um, 
but it's not quick. So you have to have some coping skills and you have to have a pain management plan. Um, that can be breathing techniques, that can be hydrotherapy, that can be um, therapeutic touch, counter pressure. Um, you can find some focal points and do breathing and focus on something. There's all sorts of things that you can learn to do to focus, you know, to refocus and reset. Another thing that I recommend, I have a, a free five-day challenge that I do. And one of them is learning how to focus and relax certain parts of your body. So the practice I have the moms do with their partner while pregnant is they tense up the right hand, but at the same time, focus on relaxing their feet to their ankles, to their legs, to their knees, come all the way up, but keeping that right hand tense because if your, your uterus is a muscle, so it's going to be tense. So if you can practice relaxing everything else, I always tell my patients, like when you practice that relaxation, especially with your pelvic muscles and all that, that needs to stay relaxed. If you can learn to relax that when you're tense and you're scared and everything's tense, it's like the baby's trying to push through a closed door, right? What's <laughs> right. on the other side, pushing the door back. So I really try to teach them how to like focus, relax, you know, like mindful relaxation techniques really help. Like I can always tell the difference when I have a yoga mom come in, you know, who knows how to relax and relax, do breathing techniques and um, all of that helps with that. Um, another option is nitrous oxide. That's another medical inner, you know, type of pain management. There are a lot of hospitals right now that are not using it, which I can't, like, I understand you're, you're using a mask and you're breathing it, but I just don't get how that's a higher risk for everyone. Maybe if you're COVID positive, but it, most hospitals are doing a rapid test and they know if you are or not. So I don't know why they're not using it. It doesn't make sense with me, mm. but it's a, it's mom controlled. So she has the tank. You have to have a nurse at bedside. You only use it during your contraction and um, you breathe it in during contraction. It's right away gone in between contractions. Oh, that's the other thing I want to say about IV medications. We will not use IV medications if, if it's your first baby and you're six to seven centimeters, we might stop at seven centimeters. First baby, probably five to, I mean, more than one baby, five to six centimeters, we probably will stop. The reason is, is it does go into the baby's system. And one of the common side effects of narcotics is respiratory distress, you know, distress or um, depression. So if let's say I give it to you in your seven centimeters and then you go to 10 complete and blow the baby out is what we would call that. There's a very high chance if it's been within four hours, we're going to have to call NICU team to the bedside and they're going to have to assess the baby oh, wow. because it's a high chance of respiratory depression. So we will probably not give it to you um, after six to seven centimeters, especially if you've had more than one baby. So that's another thing. Nitrous oxide is right away out of the system, doesn't go into the baby's system. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else we eat. Most hospitals, a lot of hospitals have birthing tubs, but they don't actually let you birth in them. Uh, if it's a birthing center, they might, but hospitals usually don't let you have a water birth, but that's hydrotherapy is a huge pain relief for women. So I always tell my mom, stay home as long as you can get in the shower, get in the tub. If, if your water's not broken and your tub, even if your water's broken, as long as you've got a clean tub, like if your tub looking a little funky, I wouldn't do it, but um, getting in the shower can be amazing for pain, for pain relief as well. I noticed so that you mentioned about the difference between first and second time moms. I know it's not really in the chron chronological order that we've been discussing, but, uh, one of a lot of our listeners were wondering, does it get easier after the first birth and what to expect after that? Well, number two babies are usually the best, like, Usually if I have a mom coming in labor and I find out it's her second baby, I get the room completely prepared. Even if she's getting induced, I'll get the room completely prepared because the second baby's like, I think our body has a, I, I always tell your path has been paved and especially <laughs> if the babies are close together, it's usually very quick. So if you had a quick first time labor, your second's probably like my first was like six to seven hours from the time oh I went gosh. into labor. Yeah, to win. But I was also very young. I had my first when I was a teenager and my last when I was 42. Um, so it was a completely different situation. But teenagers usually go very quick because their, bo their bodies are prime, you know. Um, 
But if you come in with your second, usually my second was 50 minutes from the time I walked in the door. Oh my God. Yeah. It's usually the quickest birth. Now, that being said, the more babies you have, it's not as predictable because like my midwife said, your uterus is like a rubber band that's been shot one too many times. It's a little, because it's a muscle. So when it gets stretched out and it's not as, um, you know, prime, I guess, when it's been used more and more, the more babies you've had, the more your uterus, this is why your belly might get bigger, you, you know, like you don't carry as well. Yeah. Uh, I've been experiencing that in this pregnancy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why, because your uterus has already been stretched and, um, you know, so third baby, fourth baby, they're not harder than first, but they're not as quick as two usually is number two. Interesting. Huh? Yeah. And you also have more chance for your baby to get into weird wonky positions. That's if your labor is not progressing, if you've had more than one baby and your labor is not progressing in a, you know, not quick, but in a like predictable pattern and it's not progressing quicker than a first time mom, there's usually a reason. And it's usually your baby might be, maybe it's heads turned a little bit funny or, or even it's straight, you know, what we call OP, which means the baby's face up. Um, that's usually a sign. So getting in onto your hands and knees, there's a lot you can do to try to encourage your baby into a proper position. What about the pushing stage? I know that we're running out of time, but I wanted to quickly go over pushing and what what kinds of positions that that you recommend. And then also in closing, just asking what you wished all moms knew during labor. Okay. Well, that those are both pretty easy then. Pushing, I recommend that you learn all sorts of positions and you try them all. So I always put in my mama's birth plans. I always say, please assist me into multiple pushing positions so that I can find the one that works best for me. And I know there's like so much out there about lithotomy position and being on your back and how bad that is. There are times with some women's uh physical makeup that being on the back is the best. So if you end up on your back out of you choosing to do that, not because no one's letting you out of that, that's, I'm not saying that, but if you're trying them all, you're going to try that one as well. Um, I think trying out all the positions to find the best one for you. There are certain positions that decrease um, your chance of tearing, which there's nothing 100% you can do. I know everybody wants to know that. There's nothing you can do 100%. But let's say you're squatting. That's going to increase your chance of tearing because you're putting so much pressure on the perineum. Whereas if you're laying sidelining, squatting is the, the highest chance of tearing. And sideline is the least amount because you're, you're horizontal. So anything vertical is going to increase the chance of tearing. Now, that being said, I personally, tearing is not that big of a deal. The worst, the, the worst types of tears are very uncommon. I personally would rather push out quicker than lay on my side and push not as quick and oh, wow. take longer pushing, right? That so, you know, but that's education and knowing that like squatting, I did it with several of mine that I did tear and didn't tear. So, hmm. um, so pushing, I just say, you need to learn all the positions, practice, like, you know, get into them at home. This is something a new nurse, you always learn something as a nurse. If you listen, if you're not prideful and I was working in Seattle and a brand new nurse came in and we always tell moms to grab behind their knees. Right. And during labor, if you don't know that it's like, they look at you like, what, what, what? Well, this uh, new nurse was like, grab your knee pit. And she, the mom was like, oh, okay. So now that's my new favorite thing. Like you grab that knee pit and you pull back, but you want your elbows to come up and out. Just like if you're lifting a heavy box, you would not pull with your arms straight against your body, right? You would bring your elbows up and out. So when you're grabbing your own legs, no matter what position in you're in, you're grabbing in your knee pit and your elbows go up and out because that's a powerful position. You don't want to be stiff up against your body. So just learning all those things prior to delivery, because again, when mom is in that position, whether she is an epidural or not, she's exhausted mm-hmm. and she's excited and the adrenaline's going and everything's happening at once. So it's a really hard time to teach someone how to push. I usually, if my mom has not taken a birthing class, I usually teach her on a mission, all the things I want her to know because she's not, unless she's in full-blown labor, obviously. But um, I think the thing I most want all women to know is that they have rights And that you need to be full of knowledge. You need to be educated so that you can exercise them properly. Because again, 
You don't want to say yes just because you can, and you don't want to say no just because you can, because you can do both of them, but you have to know why. You have to understand the process, what's happening inside of you and what's happening around you to make an educated, informed decision. So I think that's the thing. That's my passion is educating women because I don't like to see women coerced into things. I don't like to see women coerced into a major abdominal surgery when maybe they didn't need it. Right. You know, that changes a woman's life forever. And it's frustrating. And it's a major abdominal surgery. That's life true. You know. So, yeah. So that would be my big thing, I guess. (laughs) I love that so much. Wow. I'm so glad that you came on our show and just discuss everything. I know that I I learned so much and I know everyone listening is probably learning a lot too. So where can moms find you online if they want to learn more, connect with you or take one of your birth classes? Yeah. So I mainly hang out nowadays on Instagram and it's labor.nurse.mama. I also have a blog, labornursemama.com. And I have the shop, which is shophabibihouse.com. But yeah, find me on Instagram. I, I am very purposeful in answering DMs. It may take me a while because I get hundreds a day. I bet. <laughs> um, so I, I have an assistant who helps me and we go through them together and she'll, hey, you need to check. Like if it's just like, oh, I love your content. Thank you so much. She'll help me out with those. But the ones that are specific to labor and delivery and to birth and postpartum and breastfeeding, um, I personally answer them. I, and I answer them all. I do sticker boxes or question boxes usually once a week. And I try to answer them. That's hard. Um, because Instagram erases them after 48 hours. So (laughs) I'm out of luck at that point, but I, I, that's where I hang out most. And again, like my, my birth course, we just closed enrollment. It opens up again in January. We've got a lot of exciting changes coming with that. And I told you, I've got a vision for a VBAC course and also a comfort care course, because I think that's something that's really important is, you know, how do you cope with labor? So those are coming in the works. I love that so much. Well, thank you again, Trish, so much. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. 